We mentioned last week, I'll say it again this morning, that uh, we are, for the next three weeks, going to celebrate Advent and Christmas together by looking to the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are Israel's songbook, the songbook of God's people. It would have been Jesus' main songbook. What he would have looked to, to, to help guide his prayers to his Father when he was here on earth. And the Psalms are full of songs about what Israel wanted to see happen. Songs that they would sing to God, praying to Him to make good on things He'd promised them. So the Psalms are a great great way to celebrate Advent because Advent is all about looking for the coming of the one who's been promised. It is a time to look back at the fact that Jesus came and to remember why we needed Him to come in the first place. It's also a time for us to look ahead to His return, to the promise that He'll come back to make good in full on everything that He's promised to us. So we want to focus in on why we need Him. Advent is a time to think on what we couldn't do apart from Him, on what won't be okay apart from Him. So it's a time to get serious about what's broken in the world. Advent is a a season for desperate people, not a season for those who have it all together. Otherwise, Jesus just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think a lot of times... The story of Jesus as a little baby is told in a way that's kind of sentimental. It fits right in along with songs like I'll Be Home for Christmas, you know, or White Christmas that evoke these feel-good sensations in us that are tied to our childhood, to, honestly, cute babies sleeping next to animals are, who doesn't love that? (laughs) That can be the extent of our connection to that story. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, showed me the other day this Instagram account that's been going on for a few years now of some dog that, that some parents decided would be a good idea to put their baby child next to. And he got into it and takes a nap with that baby child every day as the child grew. And I think now there's like a second kid or a third kid and the dog does the same thing, snuggles up next to this baby. And, you know, I guess they take a picture of it every day and then instantly it's like 22,000 likes, maybe it's 2.2 million likes. I have no idea about the scale of social media liking. But people love cute babies next to animals for some reason. It's sentimental. It evokes these good feelings in us. And, and the story of Jesus basically is that, right? Cute baby swaddled, lying in a manger with the ox and the ass lowing. What does it mean to low? I don't know. I assume it's kind of a moo or some sort of bellow. I don't know. But often it's just sort of pitched at the end of, or, or, or as a package deal with a day full of consuming commercials that present the white Mercedes with the red bow on top as the capstone to a good life, right? To a perfect life that really was just waiting on that Mercedes to have everything. Jesus, as the capstone to a perfect life, really doesn't fit any more than as a cute baby sleeping next to, an a- to, to some animals that makes you feel good. And Jesus isn't anything more than just some sort of sentimental, childhood-evoking, pleasant feeling. When he's not any more than that, the incarnation just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that the God who made us would come to us as a human, just like us, for nothing more than a sentimental, warm, fuzzy feeling. 
ultimately the claim that God has become human, that God has entered into history, real history, our history, that he's taken on human flesh in all of its weakness, that he was willing to live a life of poverty and shame, that he was willing to die a brutal and painful death. Those claims, they've got to be far more than just evoking happy memories or giving put together happy humans the missing link to a perfect life. Those claims are radical. Christmas is about the incarnation. It's about the invisible God that no one has ever seen becoming touchable, swaddleable. It's about the creator of the mountains in all of their grandeur, of the seas in all of their vastness, of the stars and even the galaxies taking on the boundaries of a human body. It's about the source of all life. The only reason that there is any life anywhere. Himself becoming killable. It's a radical story. It's a story that is absolute foolishness. Unless it's true. And if it's true, if this story is true, then what we've got to do is think long and hard about what kind of situation required that kind of solution. That is a radical solution, not a sentimental one. What kind of situation required that as the only possible way out? That question is what drives us in Advent. It's what we're going to go into the Psalms to try to answer together. This week we're going to talk about Psalm 30, one of David's reflections, actually mostly a praise for God's deliverance of him, but that also led him to ask for the same things of God in the future. So David's sort of standing where we do now, in between God being true to his promises, but also looking ahead to, to, to more promises that he needed to see fulfilled. We're going to unpack Psalm 30 this morning. Next week will be Psalm 43, a prayer for for God when he felt absent absent to the, the author, a cry to him to show up, a plea to him not to reject us, and a a a request of him to send out light and truth to lead us in the darkness. And then the final uh, Sunday in the series will Unpack Psalm 72, one of Israel's favorite songs about the king that they were all waiting for. The king we trust came to them in the baby Jesus. That's the way forward for the next several weeks. Hope you guys will be around. If you're you're in town, please be with us for those days. It's going to be a sweet time together. I want us to start with Psalm 30 this morning. Psalm 30 and how it helps us connect with what we need. with why Jesus' coming was such good news, with why we look ahead to his return. 
I want to take us through this psalm in three simple steps. It hinges on what I'm calling the great reversal. We want to look at simply the plight that we face. We'll look at David's plight, his desperate condition, and see ourselves in it. Look at the way that God has rewritten the story we had begun for ourselves. That's the reversal that we need. And then we'll look ahead to the calling that we receive in light of what God has done and promised to do in Jesus. That's our simple way forward this morning. I want to start by reading the first half of the psalm, Psalm 31 to 7. And I want to ask you now, if you will, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read these first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord to us. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. This is God's word. You can be seated. David points us in these first seven verses, he points us to the plight that he faced, the plight into which God's deliverance came and found him, and into which God rewrote the story that David's life was telling. It's a plight that has two sides to it. I wonder if you notice that. I want to make sure that you notice it. Two sides to what David faced, two sides to the plight that, that we face in our lives. And the Bible is really consistent and clear about this all the way through, not just in this psalm. The first side to David's plight what he, is what he sees in his experience. What he was living through showed him part of his great need. And then the next side to his plight is what he saw underneath his experience, what he saw behind his experience, what caused his experience, what his experience of desperation helped him to see, what he saw through his experience. Two sides to the plight. The one was the death that David was facing. The other was the sin that lie behind the death that he was facing. We want to make sure we understand both sides to this because David's story here is ours. Hopefully you'll see yourself in his details. People love the Psalms, I think, partly because they're relatable. The Psalms sing things to God that we feel, that we have experienced. Except sometimes, in some ways, they're not relatable. Sometimes they don't immediately connect with our experience, at least not at first. At least not without some extra work. To me, the first three verses that, that we read here just a minute ago, they, they fall in that category. The category of stuff that doesn't immediately connect with me. Because they're open, the opening verses are actually praise to God. And a list for, 
for, of reasons for David's praise to God. And there aren't, they aren't really reasons that I think I've lived through to this point. I wonder if you did. He, praised, he praises God for not letting his enemies rejoice over him. I don't really live with a sense that I have many enemies, if, if any at all. I certainly don't feel like any are gunning for me. Do you? Then he prays to God, prays for healing him. That's one many of you can connect with. But so far in my life, I haven't personally experienced any sort of near-death illness, serious debilitating illness. And I'm guessing a lot of you haven't yet either. And then he... Then he praises God for bringing up his soul from Sheol, for restoring his life from among those who go down to the pit. That's Old Testament speak for he almost died and God gave his life back. Sheol is the place of the dead, the underworld, if you will, the pit. But I've never had a near-death experience, at least not one that I really remember. Have you? It can be tough to connect with what David is praising God for, with the, the crisis that David was experienced that, that showed him his need for a deliverer. It can be tough to connect with that if, if you don't have any enemies gunning for you like David did or if you aren't needing healing right now or if you haven't been through a near-death experience. But, but, you can think a little bit harder about it. Look a little bit closer at what David is saying and at what we're experiencing a different picture starts to come clear. Because we do, every single one of us, face what David faced because all of us face death. And with that death, the threat of a meaningless and empty life that's defined by sorrow. That was Ecclesiastes, which we studied together earlier this year, back in the summer. A whole book that's all about this problem. If if I'm just going to die anyway, then what good is my career? What good are these relationships I'm investing so much in? What good is sex or money or any of the other things that we tend to aim our lives at if our lives just end? Nothing lasts. What's the point? We do belong among those who go down to the pit, just like David. We are among the dying. Earlier this year, we took a long road trip, and sometimes we try to run out the clock on those road trips by audiobooks. This time we chose to do that. We, uh, we, we got that, that book, Unbroken. You guys know this book, Unbroken? This this World War II story that's now a movie um, about this guy who lived through, I mean, an incredible life story. Incredible. Um, it, it, it starts with his young uh, impoverished upbringing to stardom on the track and field at USC and ultimately in the Berlin Olympic Games in the 30s. Then it follows him on, as he becomes a, a bombardier on a, 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 a plane, a, one of the B planes, I forget which one, in World War II. Um, how he even, even the fact that he survived his training was incredible because there was this huge percentage of training missions that went down in flames. These planes didn't work very well. You know, they were flying coffins. They were death traps. You didn't have to, so much to worry about bullets. You had to worry about whether that thing was going to make it back to base or crash in the ocean to be lost forever. He makes it through his training. Then he gets shot down after a lot of missions where he, he did survive these missions. He gets shot down. And then it's, he and one other guy are surviving. And they're on this life raft out in the middle of the Pacific. 
No hope of being discovered out there. It's like a needle in a haystack situation. Actually, a needle in a haystack, what am I saying? There are like two people on a life raft in the Pacific Ocean kind of situation. <laughs> and they're surviving for, for uh, days, longer than anyone ever had at that time in history, without food. They're catching birds through traps that they rig up and eating them raw. And then they see a plane come over. And they're so happy. Oh, we're saved. Except that it's a Japanese zero that happens to see them out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. How's that for coincidence and luck? Comes in on them and starts to shoot up their life raft. Dude bails out. He's hiding under the life raft while the Japanese plane is shooting up his life raft. And he's fighting off sharks with his fists. Kid you not, this happened. He's fighting off sharks with his fist. Then he comes up, you know, gets some air. Here comes the plane again, back under there, fighting off the sharks with his fist. Incredible. Survives that. There's land. He sees land. The raft drifts over to it. They put their feet on dry soil. And then, from then on out, the story just gets way, 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 way worse. (laughs) They get captured by the Japanese. He lives for years in a prison camp where he's barely surviving, down to skin and bones, beaten daily, tortured by his captors. It's an incredible story. He does live through all of that. It is a story of survival. I think that's the subtitle of the book. It's amazing. But you know what? Louis Zamperini, the guy that the book is about, he died last year. So calling Louis Zamperini's story a story of survival is like calling a fall from a 40-story building a survival story because you ended it before you hit the ground. Nobody survives. All of us belong among those who go down to the pit. That's what we studied together earlier this year. That's what David is singing about here. That's the first part of our plight. That our lives are not what we want them to be. Because they don't last. And because they don't last, all of the sorrows that we experience, all the suffering, just make things worse. Just be... Just be reminders of the fact that things aren't what they are. Rather than road bumps on the way to a glorious future that we're able to get through because we know better days are coming, they're just death by a thousand cuts along the way. That's the plight that we face. We're stuck in a world that isn't for us. That's the first part of the plight that we face. That's the Ecclesiastes part. But there's more to it than that. We die not as innocent victims, but as guilty sinners. That's the other part of our plight. That's the other part of what David sings about, the other part of his experience, what he saw through his sickness or attack from enemies or whatever it was that had him facing death. Whatever that was, he, whatever, whatever his experience was, what it showed him was a deeper problem inside of himself that led to those experiences. And that comes out in the the next several verses. Verses 4 and 5, he sings praises to the Lord for the fact that God's anger is but for a moment and His favor is for a lifetime. We're going to come back to that verse. For now, it just raises a question, doesn't it? What's the stuff about God's anger? Why was God angry? Weren't we just talking about David being 
oppressed on all sides by the realities of a world that's not for him? Why bring in God's anger? God's compassion makes sense there, but what's the problem? Verses 6 and 7 point us in that direction. David says, as for me, I said in my prosperity when things were good, when things were going my way, that's when I said, I shall never be moved. Verse 7 says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. I know when things were good for me, it was because you gave me those good things. But at the time, I thought it was me. I thought I shall never be moved. I'm the reason for my prosperity. And then you hid your face. And I was dismayed. What David is singing about is the reality that he deserved what happened to him. What lies behind the plight that we face is ultimately our decision alongside David's to live as if we will never be moved. As if we are the reason for the good things we have in our life. As if we are enough to keep our lives going. As if we don't need anyone or anything. What David describes in verse 6 is the problem of self-sufficiency. It's one all of us have in us. So it's something we're especially tempted to when things are really good. Because we have a lot of incentive to take credit for those good things, right? When things are good, we want to be the reason for that. We want to be the reason that our lives are better than other people's lives, right? There's a kind of glory in it. That's what David was, I think that's what David is confessing. At the time, I took credit for my glory. It's my prosperity. And I'll never be moved. He trusted he was secure on his own. And all of us are tempted to do that. I think we're especially tempted to do that when we're young. Because when you're young, you can't imagine that the good things in your life won't last and even get better. You can't imagine that your health won't last. That, it'll always, that you'll always be able to lie down at night without aches in your joints. You can't imagine that that's not going to keep on going. You can't imagine that your good looks won't hold steady. That your hair won't stay in. That your smarts or your money or whatever won't just keep right on going as is and even getting better. All of us assume that, especially when we're young. I shall never be moved. It's the fundamental human sin. A belief that we are our own. That we're responsible for the good things that we have. That we can protect it. And therefore, we're not subject to anyone or anything else. Because it's ours. Because we provided it for ourselves. To do with it what we want. Our lives are ours. But like David, we, any good thing that we have comes from God's favor. And when he removes it, when he pulls out, when he hides his face, we fall flat. Have you experienced that yet? David's plight, whatever it was, he doesn't tell us exactly what had happened to him. Whatever it was, was an eye opener. It pulled the veil back. It pulled the, the scales off of his eyes so that he could see. And what he saw is what 
sin and death say to all of us, say about all of us, we are not God. We are nothing on our own. We cannot exist and everything will just keep right on going. That's what David learned. And God's exposure of that in David was his great gift to him. God brought him to his knees so that he could see what he really needed. It sent him to the Lord, crying out to him for mercy, pleading with the Lord to hear him. Verse, that's verse 8. To the Lord I cry. To the Lord I plead for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Verse 10. Be my helper. God's breaking of David and his breaking of us is his gift. But it doesn't even stop there. Not only does he break us to show us what we need, David's praying to him as a deliverer, as one who actually gives, as one who actually supplies the need that he's exposed in us. He doesn't take any pleasure from just showing us how foolish we are. He takes pleasure when he exposes us for who we are and then makes us different. So that's the, that's the payoff of the next verses. That's the great reversal that it's at the heart of this psalm. God trading in what we were, what we had done to ourselves, our rootedness in this plight that we couldn't escape for a story that he is writing, that he is making possible by his power that will bring him glory and us joy that never ends. That's what David promises. That's what he sings of in the rest of the psalm. I think the key to this psalm, one of the most important things you can recognize about it, is all the reversals that keep coming up in it, the contrasts that come up over and over and over again. Let me just point you to a few in the verses we've already read. Verses 1 to 3. There's this contrast between God drawing David up and David being among those who go down to the pit. There's a reversal for you. In the pit, drawn up. There's this reversal of God giving, restoring life to David, also in verse 3, when he had belonged among those who were in Sheol, he was among the dead. There's the reversal of verse 5, where God traded his weeping for joy. There's this reversal from night into morning. Then in verse 11, there's a, a shift from mourning, the other kind of mourning, not the dawn of a new day, but the, the, the grief or the sadness over what's broken. The God changes the his mourning into dancing. He changes his sackcloth or the, the garb that you would wear when you were in mourning, when you were grieving, into gladness. And then, of course, early on, in the heart of it, in verse 5, there's this reversal from anger into favor. There are reversals all over this passage. And the Old Testament is full of language like this. Language that predicts that God will not let Israel's sin define Israel's story. That He is committed to coming into a story that had been screwed up from the start and rewriting it. All of us are in need of lives that are defined not by death and guilt, but life and love. Lives that are defined not by weeping, as real as it is, as inescapable as it is. Lives defined not by that weeping, but by 
joy, not by darkness, but by the light of a new day. Lives that are defined not by mourning, but by dancing, not by sackcloth, but by gladness. All of us need someone to rewrite the script that we've written for ourselves. And it's only when we recognize it, like David did, that we're ready to celebrate what Christmas really means. We set out to write our own story. A story in which we'd be prosperous and never be moved. A story in which we would fully enjoy the happiness that we define for ourselves. Happy as we define it. Happiness as we deserve it. That we'd be able to fully enjoy that on our own. A world in which no one says no to us and nothing stands in our way. In the way of our greatness or our pleasure. That's the story we start out writing. And every one of us writes that story. And every one of our stories takes the same turn. Sadness. Brokenness. Evil. Hurting ourselves and hurting others. So what we need is a rewrite. And that is what all these reversals in Psalm 30 are pointing to. Sad stories can have happy endings by God's grace. I think that would have been a great title for this psalm. If I was one of the ones translating and putting the titles in, you know how your Bible sometimes have a little title over the top of it? This, my, mine says, Joy Comes with the Morning. I like sad stories can have happy endings by God's grace even better. That's David's point. That's his experience. And that's what he's looking to. Because ultimately, David experienced a taste of it here. You can tell it's a psalm of praise. It isn't just a psalm of asking God for things. It's also praising him for what he'd already done. But he does look forward, even though he's already experienced some sort of deliverance. That has just inspired him to pray again. And he's crying out again in verse 8 and in verse 10, Help me. Be my helper. He knows he still needs more than what he's been given. He knows he needs something God has promised but not yet delivered. He knows that this reversal he's singing about here is going to hinge on someone greater than him. One greater than David. Even a greater David. David is praying for something that only becomes possible in Jesus and in the reversals that Jesus brought in. Think about the story of Christ. Maybe it's unfamiliar to you. The story of Jesus' birth is another one that's just full of unexpected twists, of reversals of our expectations. The claim is that that Jesus is God himself become human. He is royalty in every sense of the word and then some. But the palace into which he is born is a stable. His mother is a virgin. And in his birth, the infinite God becomes a helpless baby. 
And these reversals are not arbitrary. They are the means to the reversals David sang of. Because in this virgin birth that takes place not in a palace but a stable and that brings in not a conqueror riding a white horse but a crying, defecating baby, we have God Himself reaching down low to draw up from the pit all those who will look to Him in faith. Ultimately, these reversals were just the beginning. It was through Jesus, ultimately, that we get drawn up because He wasn't drawn up but came down. It was Jesus who chose a place that He didn't deserve among those who go down to the pit. It is Jesus who the only one who ever truly deserved God's favor. The Son in whom the Father was well pleased. Who absorbed in a moment of unimaginable anger the full wrath of that God for all of our sin. How could God's anger last just a moment? But his favor lasts a lifetime. Only when the one who truly deserved his favor absorbed all of his anger once and for all. Only because the Father with whom he was one really did hide his face from Jesus. Only because Jesus was willing to be dismayed. Even to the point that he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? And he did go down to the pit. He went where David feared to go. And he did it willingly. So that joy could come in the morning. So that mourning could be turned into dancing. So that sackcloth, the garments of shame and sadness, could be traded in for the gleaming white of the righteousness of Christ. And joy came on that morning so that joy can come for you tomorrow morning and the one after and the one after, and forevermore. Because now Jesus lives to add His voice to our voices, to pray for us as we pray with David, to cry out to Him, to hear us, to intercede for us, to intervene in our despair, so that our stories are not what they would have been. This is the message of Christmas. It's the message of the Gospel. And friends, it can be true in your life if you're willing to accept the truth about yourself. If you're willing to acknowledge about yourself what David acknowledged about himself. In my prosperity, I thought I had it all and I thought it was for me. But now, dismay. Now, darkness. 
See, this message is only for desperate people. It's not for you as the garnish of a, of a meaningful and happy life. This is not the capstone, the missing link to you having everything. This message is for desperate people who realize they're getting what they deserve in life and it's awful. And who are desperate enough to look to Jesus to rewrite their story. That's an opportunity for you this morning, no matter what you've done, if you'll trust in Him. Look to Jesus and He will save you. And if you do look to Him, then now all of a sudden your life whose story is being rewritten comes with a whole new set of marching orders. Your life now has a new purpose. And this is where I want to finish. The calling that we receive. It comes out in verses 8 to 12. This is the end of all of our stories when God's the one rewriting them. To you, O Lord, I cry, David writes, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Here's the last reversal. And this is what happens. This is the ending of every story that God rewrites for those who look to him. The final reversal is from a life defined like David's by seeking glory for yourself, a prosperity that you could take credit for, a prosperity that would put you one rung above everybody else, from a life that's aimed at proving your own prosperity to a life that is completely given over to the glory of God. Did you notice how that's how David is almost kind of reasoning with God when he asks him to deliver him? He's like, you, know, you could go ahead and give me what I deserve and I could end up in, in, in death in Sheol, but who's going to praise you if I do that? Is the dust going to praise you? Is that going to add to your glory? And I think if you flip that around and make a positive statement of it, what David is basically saying is, restore my life and it's yours. Like all of it. I'm not holding back anything, any good thing in my life from the time you restore it forevermore is all about you, not about me. That's what he's saying, isn't it? And then he just confirms it again in verse 11, the last, or in verse 12, the last verses that we read. Why has God turned his mourning into dancing? Why has he swapped out the sackcloth for gladness? Why is he rewriting this story? That my glory may sing your praise. That my glory, that the best things about me, that the things about me people look at and notice, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That the good things you bring in my life as you rewrite my story are all about you. If you're, if you're willing to have God rewrite your story, you need to know that's what you're signing up for. What you're signing up for is, is a life with a flipped script. One that is no longer about proving yourself. No longer about amassing for yourself. But a life that is all about praise to the God who could deliver even someone like you. 
even someone like me. When God rewrites our story, when we connect with the beauty of Advent, then our glory, the best things about us, say nothing about us, but in everything point to Him. And in that way, we add our lives, much less our voices, to the songs the angels sang on the night that Christ was born. Glory. Glory in the highest. This is all about what He is doing. And the sweet promise that He can even do it for me. Father, please help us to embrace our role, our lives and their place in what You're doing to bring dancing out of mourning and gladness out of sackcloth. We pray that you would help us to embrace what it is that you are doing to redeem our sin and brokenness. That you would give us the joy that should be ours on the way to a joy that's never ending. And that you would keep us in faith until he returns. Hear us, O Lord, and be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.